be quite dead at last. In spite of all, perhaps next month, then it will be the month of April, or of May, for the year is still young. A thousand little signs tell me so. Perhaps I am wrong. Perhaps I shall survive St. John the Baptist's day, and even the 14th of July, festival of freedom. Indeed, I would not put it past me to pant on to the transfiguration, not to speak of the assumption. But I do not think so. I do not think I am wrong in saying that these rejoicings will take place in my absence this year. Rejoicings did take place in Paris in his absence for the city's most famous long-term literary resident, Samuel Beckett, novelist, playwright, poet, an expatriate Dubliner, 80 years old. Beckett experts came from all over the world to the Pompidou Centre in Paris to discuss the works of the great man. Among them was Rosetta Lamont from New York, a visiting professor at the Cité Universitaire. For her, Samuel Beckett, one-time member of the avant-garde, has become the classic writer. I think that very many people think, at least in France, perhaps more even than in America, uh, of Beckett as the writer of the 50s who belongs to the same group as Eugene Ionesco and Arthur Adamoff who created avant-garde theatre, theatre that has been called Theatre of the Absurd, as you know, by Mr. Martin Eslin. But in 1959, I published a very early article in America before Mr. Eslin's book came out, and I call this theatre the metaphysical farce. Uh, I was very happy to have Mr. Ionesco confirm this feeling that I have, that his theatre is not really a theatre of the absurd, that the theatre of the absurd is perhaps a theatre of of Camus, uh, of the, the existentialist theatre, is a theatre of the absurd. But metaphysical farce is really an oxymoron. It is, uh, after all, made up of two words that contradict one another, because farce is a rather gross genre with a lot of slapstick, and metaphysical, of course, are the most important philosophical considerations about where men come from, where about the beyond, about mortality, about... Uh, old age and decrepitude and uh, the wonderful thing about all these um, writers who were writing at the same time in the 50s is that they made fun uh, almost in a, in a kind of vaudeville circus way of some of the most fundamental philosophical problems of the human creature. In that sense, I think that Mr. Beckett is very much part of a sensibility and of a group but uh, I think that also it has become obvious to some of us, and I think that uh, Eugene Ionesco in that sense is not so far away from Mr. Beckett, but I think Mr. Beckett uh, has taken this even further, that uh, in a way this is a true renaissance in the arts, in the sense that, for example, French classicism was neoclassicism. And I wouldn't say that it was as close to um, the ancient theatre, the Greek theatre, uh, as perhaps this new theatre is. And my feeling is that, for example, a great deal of Samuel Beckett's work reminds me of Sophocles and even of Aeschylus. When I think of uh, Winnie's imprisonment, I think of Prometheus attached to his rock, and I think some of the utterance of the characters in their rage and anger, 
is also the outraged um, utterance that you hear in Aeschylus and perhaps even more so in Sophocles. The crocuses and the larch turning green every year a week before the others and the pastures red with uneaten sheep's placentas and the long summer days and the new-mown hay and the wood pigeon in the morning and the cuckoo in the afternoon and the corncrake in the evening and the wasps in the jam and the smell of the gorse and the look of the gorse and the apples falling and the children walking in the dead leaves and the larch turning brown a week before the others and the chestnuts falling and the howling winds and the sea breaking over the pier and the first fires and the hooves on the road and the consumptive postman whistling the roses are blooming in Picardy and the standard oil lamp and, of course, the snow and, to be sure, the sleet and, bless your heart, the slush and every fourth year the February debacle and the endless April showers and the crocuses and then the whole bloody business starting all over again. A turd. And if I could begin it all over again, knowing what I know now, the result would be the same. And if I could begin again a third time, knowing what I would know then, the result would be the same. And if I could begin it all over again a hundred times, knowing each time a little more than the time before, the result would always be the same. And the hundredth life as the first, and the hundred lives as one. A cat's flux. Beckett's London publisher is John Calder. He surprised his audience at the colloquium in Paris by comparing his client to Francis of Assisi. Well, I think there's a great many comparisons to be made between them. First of all, uh, St. Francis of Assisi was not only a saint, but also a a, a humanist who uh, attacked the corruption and the materialism of his own age. And I think Beckett does exactly the same thing today, but in a a rather different uh, way, of course. But there's something very saint-like about Beckett. I mean, he's... uh, very worried about the state of humanity and he describes the state of humanity uh, and um, I think he shows us a way to, uh, to be nicer to each other than we are and, and all his plays and his novels really uh, carry the same message that life is uh, pretty terrible as most of us have to live it but that we can share our problems and we can share our anxieties and that um, just uh, being kind to other people uh, Relieve the tension to a great extent. You know, I think there are great parallels between their lives. I mean, they both came from uh, fairly well-off families, and both uh, simply uh, rejected normal comforts and luxuries uh, which they could have had in order to live rather uh, simple monastic lives. And Beckett um, has—I uh, mean, he's, he's never more uncomfortable than when he's in a very luxurious restaurant or a very luxurious uh, setting. He lives extremely simply. I mean, his uh, his uh, flat in Paris is like a monk's cell, and uh, he lived almost entirely inside his own mind. So I think the comparisons there are very great. But of course, I went into uh, his work to find parallels. Saint Francis uh, sold his coat in order to save a, a, a lamb from being slaughtered and bought it from the butcher, and it's exactly the kind of thing that uh, that Beckett would do. In fact, in Godot, at one point where uh, made the comparison 
uh, Vladimir takes off his coat to to cover Estragon when he falls asleep, although he himself is, 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 is very cold and has to keep walking up and down. So I found a lot of comparisons rather like that. In the meantime, let us try and converse calmly, since we're incapable of keeping silent. You're right, we're inexhaustible. It's so we won't think. We have that excuse. It's so we won't hear. We have our reasons. All the dead voices. They make an eyes like wings. Like leaves. Like sand. Like leaves. They all speak together. Each one to itself. Rather, they whisper. They rustle. They murmur. They rustle. What do they say? They talk about their lives. To have lived is not enough for them. They have to talk about it. To be dead is not enough for them. It's not sufficient. They make an eyes like feathers, like leaves. Godot is one of the production notebooks that we have in Reading. In fact, there are two production notebooks. By production notebooks, I mean Beckett's own notes for his production of Waiting for Godot at the Schiller Theatre in Berlin. There are two of these, one red and one green, and there is the most incredible, meticulous detail of all the movements, the gestures, the, um, the actions of the um, characters on stage, and it's classified in certain sections under Estragon's feet, Lucky's think, the tree, and so on. So, but what I'm actually going to do is not just talk about the detail of the notebooks, but try to see how revealing they are for critical interpretation of the plays. And uh, I conclude, with a great deal of confidence, as a matter of fact, that the notebooks are absolutely essential for our understanding of the plays and offer far more than Beckett ever thought perhaps they would do. Let me just give you an example. You see, when you're talking about Estragon and Vladimir, you have two characters who, in Beckett's production notes, are actually related very closely to what one could describe as a more kind of elemental or more cosmic vision. Estragon, and I quote... Beckett almost literally Estragon belongs to the stone he is heavy and he sits on the stone Vladimir on the other hand belongs to the tree he is light now this links of course with what I call certain contrasting forces within the play a movement as it were to escape into um, into a world which is is not the reality of matter, but is something which is countered, of course, by a movement downwards. You can call it gravity in a physical sense. You can call it um, reality in another sense. Now, it's really only by seeing what Beckett, as author, become director, actually does with that play that I think we get another dimension. James Nolson, professor of French at the University of Reading and also the curator of the Beckett archives which are kept at Reading. Beckett's early love of the theatre extended to, or perhaps began with, the music hall. 
Catherine Worth, a professor at London University, spoke in Paris about these influences and about one musical artist in particular, Harry Clifton. He was one of these 19th century musical performers who really built up his act on common sayings, and I feel that Beckett is very much in that theatrical tradition. Harry Clifton used to sing to the tune of the Cornflower Waltz and exhort his audience to save a penny for a rainy day and tell them charity begins at home and pull paddle your own canoe. And uh, a reason why I th- he seems to have a special link with Beckett is that he was also the author of a popular song called The Weepin' Willer, in which a girl um, thinks about hanging herself from the willow tree, committing suicide, and then has second thoughts. And this is how it goes. She looked at the water below and her nerves began to totter. I'm not very bold and I may take cold. I'll wait till the weather is hotter. And this you is rather in tune with Estragon and Vladimir, isn't it? In the end Do you of think waiting Beckett for the knew that song? Well, it's possible. One doesn't know because he's such an omnivorous reader and also a great lover of musical. And the other person I mentioned um, was Groucho Marx who used to do things like burning the candle at both ends, literally. That's the sort of visual joke I think Beckett would certainly enjoy. We know he, he did go to musical performances and loves silent film. sleep. I felt lonely. I was dreaming I was happy. That passed the time. I was dreaming... Don't tell me! I wonder is he really blind? Blind? Who? Potsau. Blind? He told us he was blind. What about it? Seemed to me he saw us. Ah, you dreamt it. Let's go. We can't. Ah. Are you sure it wasn't him? Who? Um, Goddard. But who? Potts. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. <sighs> Suppose I may as well get up. Oh! Dee Dee. I don't know what to think anymore. <sighs> My feet. Help me. Not surprisingly, Terence Brown, professor of English at Trinity College Dublin, came to Paris to talk about Beckett and the Irish connection. Yes, I would see that in many ways in, even all, in the play All That Fall, obviously uh, there are echoes of sing language, sing song, the Alberno English, which is actually employed. I also see that uh, he was interested in uh, Yeats's later plays at the Hawk's Well, uh, for example, and the image of solitary figures on a lonely stage is something that he may have derived from Sing's uh, The Well of the Saints, 
which would seem uh, in many respects to anticipate the kind of stark uh, metaphysical vision that one derives from a Beckett play. So I think there is uh, a sense in which there is in, uh, influence, but there is also the sense in which Beckett is caught in a similar kind of historical condition uh, to the Singh and Yeats, but at a later stage, and his response is accordingly different. Well, I, I'm going to talk about, uh, quite simply, Samuel Beckett's Ireland, but quite simply, it is not, uh, because for a writer who left the country at an early age, as a young man, and who for many years hasn't visited uh, the country, and whose work on first reading does not seem ostensibly to deal uh, largely with uh, Irish subject matter. He represents a writer who seems uh, outside the tradition of Irish writing in English, which has often been obsessively concerned and obviously concerned with the whole matter of Ireland, with the, uh, the mess of Ireland, the conflict, the whole situation of Ireland, England. All of that seems on first and even subsequent readings, uh, not a primary presence in Beckett's world. And yet I want to place him as a writer who has a specific and particular Irish background, that of the uh, Protestant uh, Irish in the first couple of decades of Irish independence, whose childhood, whose imaginative formation, was before independence and the partition and the civil war. And I will be. I wish to see Beckett as a writer in whose work one can find traces, as on a Geiger counter, that measure at crucial points the tremors that were experienced in Protestant Ireland in that period. Now, I see that as being reflected in a number of concerns in Beckett, and one of those is one of his uh, concerns with the, the home, the house, indeed even the room. And in these, one sees a kind of diminution taking place of the characteristic Anglo-Irish concern with the great house, the big house, uh, which even as late as Yeats had been projected as an image of heroic uh, splendour against uh, the social dishevelment of modern Ireland. In Beckett, you see that reduced only to a private room, uh, a room in which obsessional memories are uh, reflected upon. And this seems to me to represent some kind of uh, imaginative shift that had taken place in the Ireland of his period. Now, I relate that to other, much more directly autobiographical works that were produced by individuals of his background in the same period, and I'm thinking primarily of Louis McNeese, and interestingly enough, I think also C.S. Lewis, uh, who was, both of whom came from Church of Ireland backgrounds, in some respects similar to that of Beckett's, uh, who wrote works, autobiographical works, uh, Lewis is surprised by joy, uh, Louis McNeese's entitled The Strings Are False, uh, which also have an obsessional retrospective recall of the family home. And in their world, we, we see how the literature of childhood is registered in terms of notes of endurance, which seems remarkably similar to the sense of endurance in a room uh, that is one of the motifs of Beckett's work. These three, he actually singles out uh, for special praise when he was asked to write a programme once about um, a performance of one of Shaw's plays, and he wasn't so keen on Shaw, but on that occasion he did say that he would um, exchange Shaw for uh, Yeats, Singh 
kind of case, and he mentioned a specific place of theirs, including um, by obliquely he mentioned at the Hawk's Well, and Sings play the Well of the Saints, and do cases do know. And I think it gets different, there are different affinities with each of these playwrights, but Sing, I would say, particularly the connection between them is in their fascination with loneliness, their their power to show us lonely figures wandering through desolate landscapes in a way that's both comical and also lyrical and really very touching. But above all, I would say, to show how their minds are full of words, wonderful words, the gift of the gab they have, these people of Beckett's and Sings, and O'Casey's, of course, and how they can construct worlds to live in for themselves and for other people through their imaginative powers. And that's the thing that one always thinks of with seeing, isn't it? Straight away, and certainly with these lonely characters of Beckett's too. You see him in the Irish tradition? Oh, very much so, yes. I think it's... I found it interesting to talk about him in Paris because I've always felt his closeness to Yeats and the, and the other Irish playwrights. And from the turns of phrase, of course, that you get in Beckett's plays, as in Ajo little simple question like will I tell you now seems to me to breathe Irishness and yet of course he's, there is a French dimension too, he's lived in Paris many years writes in French and I think um, probably there has been a tendency for the French to claim him as French, it's quite course, natural but <laughs> Of course how translatable are those, those, those expressions into French? Very difficult, some of them translate relatively easily but very often you have to lose some of the force of um, the image and you have to get a somewhat more literal meaning or find a way of putting it which conveys the sense but doesn't actually give you a joke I mean one of the phrases which he doesn't use in the play but which I feel is in the background of the teeth examining routine in Happy Days, it's one of those that you cannot translate into French in the teeth of her knowledge and it can't, it can't really be done and keep in the word teeth James Nolson, the curator of the Beckett archives is also fascinated with the Irish connection in Beckett's work it's very strong. We have not only a lot of Irish friends, but uh, at the moment uh, we have a, an exhibition, a major exhibition of photographs coming from the Irish photographer, the Dublin photographer, David Davison, which form part of a book written, interestingly enough, not by a Beckett scholar, but by an Irish cardiologist, an expert on blood pressure, uh, Dr. Owen O'Brien, who comes from Dublin and is a specialist and an expert also on the history of Dublin. Now that exhibition is coming first to the University of Reading in May and stays until June. And it is important. I think it's important in several ways. But it's important in the sense that it actually shows that there is a real world. It will never be more than, or less, than Beckett's reality, his real world, but there is a real world in Beckett. You see, scholars have in the past been so preoccupied with this, with Beckett as the, I would call it the king of the dark depths of the internal world, the solipsistic self 
that they forget that even though this material is transposed, when Beckett writes about a road to nowhere, that road actually goes across the Dublin Hills. And if you know your Dublin, as Dr. O'Brien knows his Dublin, you can not only pinpoint the actual places that Belacqua, in More Pricks Than Kicks, the early stories, sees in his uh, travels and in the stories, but actually in the later prose and in the later plays, you can actually see that those memories of Beckett as a youth brought up in Fox Rock and in Dublin, of course, um, have stayed with him and that those memories, that he is still, in a sense, and I use here a term that he's used to, Dr. O'Brien, trudging the old back roads. How can I go on? I cannot. Oh, let me just flop down flat on the road like a big fat jelly out of a bowl and never move again. A great big slop thick with grit and dust and flies. They would have to scoop me up with a shovel. Heavens, there is that up mail again. What will become of me? I am just a hysterical old hag, I know, destroyed with sorrow and pining and gentility and church-going and fat and rheumatism and childlessness. Minnie, little Minnie, love, that is all I ask, a little love daily, twice daily, fifty years of twice daily love, like a Paris horse butcher's regular. What normal woman wants affection? A peck on the jaw at morning, near the ear, and another at evening. Peck, peck, till you grow whiskers on you. Jerry Jukes, who lectures on Beckett's work, adapted the solo stage show from Beckett's trilogy, Malloy, Malone Dies, and The Unnameable. And the show, called I'll Go On, with the actor Barry McGovern, was staged in Paris during the Beckett celebrations. Does Jerry Duke see Beckett first as a novelist or as a playwright? Well, he began his career writing fiction. Um, and in the late 40s, when he, when he was working on the trilogy, um, he, he, produced, he produced Gatto in 1948-49. Um, I see him principally as a fiction writer, though fiction is hardly the kind of category that one would use. Uh, the the show that, that Barry and I were involved with, I think demonstrates in one way that the fiction and the drama are very close together. There is there's very little, there's really in the, in the trilogy there's a very, very narrow dividing line um, between a, a sort of a discursive prose and a, a, a script for a speaking voice. Um, now, of course, in in making our selections, we we went for those pieces which, which uh, are more hospitable to the speaking voice. 
But I find, for instance, in, in even after the trilogy in the text Pour Rien, um, that again the, 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 the pretense, if I can use that word, that informs much of the writing is that the is that it's not written, that it is actually uttered. Um, and okay, in the in the in the sixties, with say in the mid 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 sixties onwards, with texts like Imagination, Dead Imagine and Lessness and Ping and so on. Um, you can't you can't very much say that, though quite a number of these texts, and particularly say a piece like Enough, have been or ha- have been organised for uh, performance on the stage. Um, now I haven't I haven't had the, the the opportunity to see many of these pieces, uh, but but uh, many many artists, actors, actresses, and in fact some musicians have found um, within. Beckett's rhythms, even when he's using a very fragmented or very fractured syntax, like in something like Lessness, uh, they have found that hospitable to um, interpretation in a medium other than that which he has originally composed the material. For instance, Jerry Barry has done um, uh, a musical setting for Lessness. And you know, you can multiply these examples. The, the task say in some years' time, the task of bringing uh, out a full bibliography of Beckett in his appearances and all the various media he's used, that is going to fall to some scholar who will probably go mad. Uh, the, the work is going to be incredibly difficult, simply because um, his work exists not only in two languages, which is complicated enough, but in, in multimedia. When uh, Godot first came on in London, I saw it and was fascinated by it. I wrote him a letter uh, saying I would like to uh, publish it in Britain, and I'd very much like to meet him. But the letter took uh, several weeks to get to him because it was sent to the wrong address. And uh, when I finally did come to Paris and and, uh, meet him, we got on very well, and we um, used to meet several times a year and have dinner together and so on. But I never published Godot because my letter being late, another publisher's letter got there first. But then they decided they didn't really like the novels very much uh, for various reasons, and so I uh, got hold of the novels and then eventually published all his poetry and everything else. So I have about 80% of his output, but not, unfortunately, the, um, the most popular plays, which, of course, is what sell, sells best. So how close has your relationship with him been down the years? Oh, well, we've been very, very good friends now for 30 years, and uh, I see him every time I come to Paris. I see him twice this week. And, um, I mean, you know, we used to sit up and talk uh, most of the night. Nowadays, uh, you know, he's 80, and he can't do that anymore. So our meetings are much shorter, but uh, we're very good friends, and we um, talk about the state of the world and and his own writing and so on. It's always exciting, you know, when he gives me a a new text. Uh, The last one that I published was Worsford Ho. And I had dinner with him one night. I said, by the way, Sam, is there anything else coming along? So he opened his briefcase and said, well, I've, I've got this, but you don't have to publish it. You probably won't like it. That's an absolutely marvellous text. You know, I've memorised a good bit of it and occasionally um, recite it in different places. one of my party acts. Have some of these texts been produced unexpectedly for you? Well, that one was, yes. He never tells you... Uh, when he expects to finish anything because he's never sure if he's going to finish it. You know, I know his drawers are stuffed with uh, things that he started and not been able to get on with very far. 
and then sometimes he starts it in French and continues in English, and sometimes it's the other way round, and then all of a sudden there's a burst of energy and he finishes it. But you never know what's coming along. And in the relationship of, of publisher and author, you would never, as publishers do, push the author to, to finish something? Oh yes, I would certainly push, but you know, um, in a friendly way, of course. <laughs> no, I mean, I think all authors have got to be pushed to get on with things. What I'm pushing Sam about right now is to translate some of his French poems, which are marvellous things. Uh, in, in, in order to twist his arm a little bit, I've d- uh, done quite a few of them myself uh, into English, because somebody else's translation is usually the spur to get him going. She knew it was me by my smell. Her shrunken, hairy old face lit up. She was happy to smell me. She jabbered away with a rattle of dentures and most of the time didn't realise what she was saying. Anyone but myself would have been lost in this clattering gabble, which can only have stopped during her brief instance of unconsciousness. In any case, I didn't come to listen to her. I got into communication with her by knocking on her skull. One knock meant yes, two no, three I don't know, four money, five goodbye. I was hard put to ram this code into a ruined and frantic understanding, but I did it, in the end. That she should confuse yes, no, I don't know and goodbye was all the same to me, I confused them myself. But that she should associate the four knocks with anything but money was something to be avoided at all costs. During the period of training, therefore, at the same time as I administered the four knocks on her skull, I stuck a banknote under her nose, or in her mouth, (laughs) in the innocence of my heart. For she seemed to have lost, if not absolutely all notion of mensuration, at least the faculty of counting beyond two. It was too far far, yes, the distance was too great from one to four, By the time she came to the fourth knock, she imagined she was only at the second, the first two having been erased from her memory as completely as if they'd never been felt. Though I don't quite see how something never felt can be erased from the memory, and yet it is a common occurrence. She must have thought I was saying no to her all the time, whereas nothing was further from my purpose. Barry McGovern and the small group from Dublin's Gate Theatre were given the privilege of meeting the reclusive Samuel Beckett after the performance of I'll Go On. Meeting Beckett in real life, as distinct from Beckett in his writings, is described by Barry McGovern. Well, it was a marvellous experience because I've been reading his novels and poems and uh, other writings and and playing in some of his plays for years. And indeed, I've seen all of his plays, but two, I think, and... uh, I, I, it was a marvellous experience, naturally, because I've been immersed in him for a long time, especially over the last year. And um, But he's a very kind, uh, gentlemanly man, very polite. He's very interested in our show. we had been in communication with him by letter, and uh, he's been very helpful and very encouraging about the show. He's a very private, quiet man. He is not a recluse, as people say. He's just a private man, and he, I respect his privacy, and I wish more people did, because he's been hounded by everybody, especially at this... 80th birthday celebration thing, which I think he could do without. I think he'd be very glad when it's all over. John Minahan was also in Paris during the celebrations to take yet more photographs of Samuel Beckett, a man he has photographed on other occasions in London and in Paris. For a photographer, he's a dream. The man has a fantastic eagle-shaped uh, face, very Irish face, actually. I mean, I mean, there's 
great photographs of, of Beckett, but he's very easy man to photograph and indeed likes the camera. I suspect he probably likes the camera more than his own voice, which he still has that you know, slight Dublin note to it. I found the man very give, giving. Um, he was very uh, hospitable to me uh, because I don't talk to him about his work. I'm not a Beckettian scholar. I'm a photographer. He's an Irishman. I'm an Irish photographer, and I wanted to photograph him. He'd seen my work in a thigh, and um, from that moment on, the relationship was based on, like, what's the price of a pint of Guinness in Dublin? Um, uh, have you been back lately? Uh, he helped me, um, and that was great. I mean, that was nice. Of course, you know that Mr. Beckett does not like to reveal himself too much. And in one thing that he does say is that when he was a schoolboy, he was forced to uh, study science, which is not something that he enjoyed so much, because later on, of course, he went on to classical and modern languages. Uh, I think that much of what of, of the wonderful irony about science in his work may come from those times when he was a schoolboy. But if you read Mr. Beckett, there are so many references to Democritus, to Heraclitus, to, to well, philosophy. Uh, and there is a wonderful passage about Prometheus in the unnameable, an ironic passage but a very revealing passage. So that I think that when you read Samuel Beckett's work, you have the um, references and, and, and the little keys that open those doors right in the texts, or sometimes in the subtext. Well, we talked about winners of the Derby. Um, we talked about the tribulations of touring shows to foreign countries, not just to France. Um, and all sorts of things which, which you know, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll have to sit down later and compose my thoughts. I was, well, to be quite candid about it, I was rather overwhelmed uh, to be with him. Um, it's been, well, the fulfilment of, of not an ambition, but a desire that I've had for many, 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 many years since I started to read Beckett when I was a teenager. My way is in the sand flowing between the shingle and the dune. The summer rain rains on my life, on me, my life, harrying, fleeing to its beginning, to its end. My peace is there in the receding mist, when I may cease from treading these long shifting thresholds, and live the space of a door that opens and shuts. <laughs> 